Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. John 7, we'll be reading from verse 25 to 36. John writes, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Father, this morning, our heart's prayer is that we would know you. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this church, Lord, that you would be the teacher. God, I pray that you would um, just take me out of the equation and that these words would be your words, that this would be your food feeding your sheep. Father, I pray that you would teach all of us that we would grow to love you more and leave here today with a hunger and a thirst that only you can satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen. We all know that old adage that ignorance is bliss. What you don't know can't hurt you. If you don't know the rules, how can you be held? How can you be expected to follow them? If you don't know, you're completely absolved of any and, any, any and all responsibility, right? So you're driving down a road, never driven on it before, haven't seen a speed limit sign in miles, Suddenly, your whole world turns blue with flashing lights. Taking a hike, and you see a stick in the path. Suddenly, that stick coils up, strikes out, and bites, leaving two little puncture wounds in your ankle. But when it comes to God and his word, ignorance is anything but blissful, much less excusable. 
Paul in Romans 1 says that ignorance of God is inexcusable based solely on creation. With the law and the prophets available to them, Jesus' hearers in our passage today had absolutely no excuse for ignorance of God. They were religious in every sense of the word about going to the temple or the synagogue every Sabbath. Like many American Christians, the Jews were very good at practicing their cultural Judaism while being completely ignorant of the purpose of their religion. Throughout John 7, we're presented with varying responses to Jesus because of unbelief. From those who taught that Messiah should be more popular, like his siblings, or those who thought that he thought he should be more obvious, as we saw two weeks ago in the first half of this chapter. But in our text for this week, we're going to see yet a third response, an ignorance of Jesus. Jesus' teaching in verses 16 to 24 of this same chapter made a favorable impression on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some of them were starting to wonder if Jesus truly was the Messiah and if the Jewish leaders knew that he was Messiah because he didn't do anything to stop them. They didn't do anything to stop him, excuse me. The Jewish leaders have been plotting since chapter 5 to kill Jesus after he healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. So it was no secret in Jerusalem that they wanted him dead. But since he was openly speaking in the temple, why weren't they moving to arrest him? Why let him speak so freely? The Jerusalemites actually began to wonder if he might then really be the Messiah. But their musings aren't based on any scriptural fact. Rather, on the inaction of their rulers. Instead of knowing for themselves the evidence of the Messiah, they relied on others to tell them when Messiah had arrived. Now, by no means am I arguing that we arguing against biblical instructors or gathering for instructors as we truck shun as we do on Sunday mornings. But as people of God, we should be so well versed in the scriptures ourselves that we aren't relying solely on others for our biblical knowledge. Back in verse 14 of John 7, John wrote that Jesus was in the temple teaching. Here he is in verse 28, again, John reminding us that Jesus is in the temple. Why is he calling out this detail so quickly? The temple was the heart of Judaism. Three times per year, the law commanded the people to travel to the temple in order to celebrate what God had done for them. One was Passover, their freedom from Egypt and slavery. Pentecost, the giving of the law at the Mount Sinai shortly after they were released from Egypt. And then the Feast of Booths, which is the one they're celebrating here, commemorating their time in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. And they were to go to the temple during these times, offer sacrifices for sin, and in praise and worship to God. Here in the temple, which should have housed the very glory of God, was a symbol of worship to God. It was a symbol of God's presence among his people. Messiah now stood and taught. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was in the temple. Yet the people are so ignorant of God that they miss this awesome event. Many want to silence him, kill him, because he's teaching against their beloved religion. 
They're so caught up in the sacrifices themselves that they've missed the typology within the sacrifices. Believers, what are we so in love with that we miss Christ? Are we more caught up in our ministry, our work, or even our families that we miss Christ? Don't get me wrong, all of these are good things. But if like the Israelites and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we are too caught up in them to see Christ, we need to repent. As we heard two weeks ago, teaching as Jesus did was absolutely unheard of. He'd had no formal rabbinical instruction. But yet they all marveled at his teaching. The crowd of pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem for this feast most likely knew very little of the plot to kill Jesus. They may not have known much about Jesus anyway, only rumors, unless he had come to their town. But the people of Jerusalem knew about Jesus and the religious plot to kill him. If you remember back in John 2, Jesus had purged the temple of greedy money changers and animal sellers. I can promise you that he didn't set foot into Jerusalem without word of his arrival, beating him to the city center. The Jerusalemites were very familiar with him. With his open teaching in the temple on this particular occasion, they began asking and wondering if perhaps the Jewish leaders had finally realized Jesus was truly the Messiah because he seemed to have some sort of immunity against his arrest. But in their asking and wondering, they prove yet again their ignorance of God. Their views of how the Messiah would reveal himself are extra-biblical. In verse 27, many of them assume, based on some errant rabbinical teaching, that no one would know where Messiah is from. This rabbinical teaching taught that Messiah would be just a, a normal human being until Elijah returned and anointed him. And at that time, that normal man would become Messiah. So based on this teaching, Jesus couldn't be Messiah because they knew where he was from. He was too well known. Later on in chapter 7, others said he can't be Messiah because he's from Nazareth and everybody knows that Messiah comes from Bethlehem. So since he was from Nazareth, he was disqualified. Never mind the fact they're at the temple and could go get his birth records and set the record straight. It wasn't necessary. They knew all there was to know about him. And I wonder if there are things that we are convinced that is absolute truth, that has no basis in Scripture. Are we willing to allow the Word of God to change our understanding and shape our hearts and minds and even our behavior differently? Israel should have been able to identify the Messiah very quickly. This was the people, after all, descended from Abraham. Abraham, who was called out to become a new nation. His descendants moved to Egypt to escape a famine, only to be enslaved. And after 400 years, God miraculously set them free at Passover, proving his power over the greatest earthly kingdom of that time. He brought them into the desert to make a covenant with them in order to make them a great nation by which to bless all the other nations. At Mount Sinai, God gave them the law, which, according to Galatians 3, pointed to Christ and to repentance. God gave this nation prophets, priests, kings, all to declare to them the words of God. At Mount Sinai, he directed Moses to build a tabernacle in which he was to dwell amongst his people. 
yet they still refused to believe. They became ignorant of God, going through the motions and allowing motions to callous them to the very thing that these motions were pointing to. So God sent them into exile. All through the prophets, we read the phrase, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Yet when they returned to the land, instead of following the law and looking to the Messiah, they set up rules and boundaries around the law to protect them from breaking the law. The law became an idol, became their Messiah. Instead of understanding that the law prompted heart change rather than external conformity, they became legalistic. They thought that mere conformity to what God required was all they needed for righteousness. Meaning their hearts were just as sinful as ever, but added a pride about how righteous they were. They lived in outward conformity in order to please the eyes of man. They knew of God, but had no true knowledge of God. Consequently, when Messiah came, they didn't recognize the signs and missed him. Then when Jesus claimed to be Messiah, their incorrect understanding of who Messiah was caused them to miss him and reject him out of ignorance. So Jesus, yet again, patiently points out their ignorance. If you'll remember back in John 5, he said that they searched the scriptures thinking that eternal life was in the scriptures themselves. But yet they refused to come to the incarnate word of God of whom the scriptures are about, wherein true eternal life really is. Earlier in John 7, Jesus told them that if anyone wanted to do God's will, they would know that Jesus' teaching was from God. Dear ones, how many times do we assume that we know God? Are we actively seeking a relationship with him? Or are we content with our partial understandings that we have from keeping him at arm's length and not really letting him into our lives? If we don't know the Christ whom the Father has sent, how can we expect it to know God the Father? Or on the flip side, we can't know the Father because we don't know the Christ. Starting in verse 28, Jesus moves on to reveal his true origin. In that, he reveals his purpose for coming to dwell among men. Jesus came to reveal God to mankind. Standing in the temple, he cried out loudly for all to hear. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I am come from him, and he sent me. And Jesus packs so much in these four short little English sentences. He acknowledges that the Jews knew him and knew where he's from, but only in an earthly human sense. He says they've missed the whole point of his true identity. They don't know who he really is or where he is really from. He says that he was sent. He did not come of his own accord. And he completely discounts his earthly lineage and claims to be the very Messiah the law pointed to. But they were so ignorant of the law that they missed the Messiah standing in the temple and restoring, excuse me, 
his own earthly house. They were so focused on Messiah being a political Messiah and restoring David's earthly throne that they missed all the signs of his deity. You see, the Jews never expected to worship Messiah. But Jesus said he was sent by him who is true, by one who is very real. The Jews acknowledge that God is real. What Jesus was saying that God really sent him. But yet he also came willingly. Being sent implies a purpose. There's a reason. You send a child to their room for punishment, a student to school for education, or an employee to work to accomplish a task, or even a messenger to deliver a specific message. Christ came to reveal God to mankind and to redeem for himself a people to whom he had revealed the Father. Now, like many churches, the Mount has a purpose statement to display the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And everything we do comes out of that. Times of corporate prayer, to our singing, our teaching and praying, our outreaches, discipleship times. We do all these for the purpose of making him known and displaying his grace. So too, Jesus had one purpose in mind, and everything else that he did flowed out of that purpose, to make God known by being obedient to death on a cross. Jesus laid aside the glory that was rightfully his from eternity past and took on human flesh to make God known. But the Jews were living blissfully, thinking they were something they were not. They were convinced they were in the right standing with God. And so in verse 29, Jesus drops an absolute truth bomb on them and on us. Him you do not know. You don't know God. So what God do we think we know? God of knowledge, the God of good health, or even the God of religion? Or is the God that you and I know, the God of the Bible, as revealed through his Son, Jesus Christ? The Bible says many times that people were sent by God, but there's a a phrase in verse 29 that separates Jesus from all the others sent by God. Jesus said he was sent by God from God. If you flip back just over to to John 1 for just a second, just a couple of pages back, John writes in his great prologue, many of us have it memorized, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Drop down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus knew the Father because He came from an eternal state of existence with the Father and was sent by the Father. But his audience didn't know God. Remember his purpose for coming, to make God known. God the Son became flesh, dwelt among men, that we might know God the Father. Being very God himself, Jesus is a perfect representation. The writer of Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of the Father. 
he displays the glory of God. But being dead spiritually, we need to be made alive before we can truly know God. Hence, the cross and the resurrection. Jesus became our substitute on the cross, making atonement for our sins and appeasing the wrath of God, whom we alienated ourselves from by our sin. Through the cross, we are made alive to God the Father. The narrow gate at the trailhead to the knowledge of God is the cross. If you and I don't go to God by way of the cross, we will never find God. Believer, do you regularly go back to the cross? Not looking again for salvation, obviously, but looking for Jesus? Do you regularly recenter your life on the Christ of the cross? Unbelieving friend, if your path to the knowledge of God doesn't start at the cross, you won't find him. Broken, sinful people, ignorant of the truth, cannot tolerate being told they don't know God. These people were perfectly happy living their own truth. Perfectly happy thinking they were something they were not. But along comes Jesus claiming to have originated with God and having been sent from God. His message violated their truth. It was antithetical to their very lives, and so Jesus must be silenced. They decided he had to die. They began to persecute the truth. So in verse 30, you see they were seeking to arrest him. And in verse 32, they actually sent officers to try to arrest him. Friends, if we preach the same message that Christ preached, like him, persecution will soon come for us. It came for him. And persecution is a sad response to the revelation of God. It shows a callousness of heart and a state of death like nothing else. But who are we as the servants of Jesus Christ to expect that we will be treated any differently? The way of the cross is the way of the Christian, and oftentimes it's accompanied by persecution. Take hearts, though, dear ones, for in that little phrase at the end of verse 30, there is such a hope and comfort. I fear we often just gloss over it as we read it and, and forget it, but it holds such truth. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus, but John writes that no one laid a hand on him, for his hour had not yet come. Bound by human flesh to a specific place at a specific point in time, Jesus was still in sovereign control over all. An 18th century commentator wrote this, God has wicked men on a chain, and whatever mischief they would do, they can do no more than God will suffer them to do. When Satan fills their hearts, yet God ties their hands. We are protected by a power that our persecutors know nothing of. Jesus' life had an appointed end, and no one would be able to end it any sooner than he allowed. Even his appointed end is far greater than the Jews had in mind. Just when they thought they had permanently silenced him, Jesus would rise in victory and power, and his followers would spread his message all over the world, oftentimes spread even further by the Jews' persecution. 
And so their efforts to silence him actually made his voice even louder. How great is our God that he can use even the wicked devices of men to spread his message of salvation. But bracketed by that desire to arrest and kill Jesus stands verse 31. John tells us that many again believed based on his signs, saying that there was no way that when Messiah came that he would do more than Jesus had done. They still aren't equating Jesus with Messiah. Signs were indeed used to authenticate the message of the gospel. But faith only in the signs is no true faith. The man at the pool of Bethsaida had had faith, sign faith. If he didn't, he would have stayed right where he was after Jesus told him to get up. But as we saw, his sign-deep faith never grew into word-based faith. These sign-deep believers liked the external wonders that Jesus did, but they had no time for the miraculous heart surgery he really wanted to do. Again, ignorance of the scriptures led the Jews to miss their Messiah. And sadly, our Orthodox Jewish friends are still searching for Messiah. And they've even completely rejected him as a good rabbi. But if you ever meet a Jew who has come to saving faith in Jesus as Messiah, he will tell you how the scriptures are so much more alive to him. How the Old Testament has been unlocked and opened in a way he never saw before. Friends, Jesus is the key to unlocking the mysteries of the Old Testament. Without him, Jews and Gentiles alike will never fully understand its message. John is again demonstrating true faith by contrasting it with wrong faith. He does say that many believed in him, but notice that they are looking only at his signs. True faith acknowledges the miraculous nature of Jesus' signs and wonders, but it doesn't stop there. True faith looks to the word, the message that is backed up by the signs. True faith looks to the Christ of the cross, not the worker of the signs. True faith looks to the suffering Savior who can heal the soul of sin so that the believer might live in eternal knowledge of God. True faith stands with Christ in time of persecution. True faith won't abandon Christ when the crowds are crying out, crucify him. In verse 32, we return again to the leaders trying to arrest Jesus. And this time, like I said, they put feet to it. They actually send the temple police. But remember, his time had not yet come. They could do nothing to him without his prior approval. Now, for us in 2022, Clemson, South Carolina, I don't think the police are going to march in here in just a minute and arrest any of us, at least not yet. But many of you have faced the ridicule of friends and even family. Some of you have experienced workplace pressure to conform to their standards. Beloved, we serve someone who is not ignorant of our sufferings, who can support, uphold, and be our very present help in time of trouble. I would remind us again that nothing comes apart from his command. In Matthew 11, Jesus gives us a a beautiful expression of his heart. So, weary soul, come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest for your souls. He is gentle and lowly of heart. You will find no rest anywhere else. The Christian life isn't a life of ease and no pain. 
Jesus walked a lonely and hard road and calls us to take up our cross and follow him. But like Spurgeon said, he always takes the heavy end of the cross. In our final few verses for today, Jesus is very unconcerned with the murderous plot against his life and prophesies his great victory. He understands that the beginning and ending points of his earthly life are dictated by his Father alone. And elsewhere in Scripture, he states that no one takes his life from him. Rather, he lays it down willingly. So as the officers come to try to arrest Jesus, he tells the Jews that he won't be with them much longer. Then he will return to God who sent him. After that, they will continue to search for him, but won't be able to find him because they cannot come where he is. And the Jews' response is typical of unbelief. Just as we saw last week, it is very easy to assume that Messiah will be obvious to all. But dead in their own sin, the Jews are blind and deaf to what Jesus has said. He was just publicly proclaimed to everyone in the temple that he was sent by God, and he's about return to return to God. However, they assume that going to the Jews, he is going to the Jews dispersed amongst the Gentiles in an attempt to escape their murderous plot. And they're dumbfounded by his statements of, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. But Jesus knows what lies between these statements in John 7 and his return to the Father. He will be betrayed by one of the twelve and sent through no less than three mock trials, be struck in the face while blindfolded, have his beard pulled out, flogged by a whip with nine tails with bits of bone and pottery tied in, marched outside the gates of the city, stripped of all clothing and nailed to an old rugged cross, a punishment reserved only for the lowest of the lowest criminals. Even the Romans acknowledged that crucifixion was too harsh for a common slave. But the worst of it was not the rusty nails being driven into his hands and feet or that crown of thorns pressed into his head. The worst part was when the God the Father poured out his infinite wrath against sin on his own son whom he had sent. For three hours, Jesus bore the weight of that separation from his Father as he paid for your sin and mine. But Christ endured all of that shame, pain, and torment for the joy that was set before him. For he knew that three days after laying down his life, he would rise from the dead. You see, death for Jesus was not the end. It was the beginning of that joy promised to him from long ago. And the author of Hebrews said that joy set before him was to sit down at the right hand of the Father. He's not sitting down to rest. Rather, the image is that of a king sitting down in judgment. It's a sign of an accomplished purpose. Jesus had come to make God known, and having accomplished that, he is ready to judge those who do not know him. So I would remind us that ignorance is anything but blissful. In fact, ignorance of God is dangerous for our souls. You might be able to claim ignorance if you're in a different state and get out of that speeding ticket. You definitely won't be able to plead ignorance when you stand before Jesus at the end of time. You may be sitting there wondering, how can I know God? 
And I've come to realize, like the ones in our text, that I, I don't know God. Friend, to know God is to know Jesus. In John 8, Jesus will say that if we know him, we know the Father. He is the only way to the Father. And to know Jesus is to know the Scriptures, for they bear witness about him, John 5, 39. The Scriptures say that we are dead without Christ. You must believe that he died for your sin, bearing the full wrath of God's punishment that was raised from the dead. Only then will you be saved. It's all in the Bible. So I would challenge you, get in the Word. Find a Bible study. Find someone to teach you the Bible. If you don't have someone to do that, find me after the service. I'll be happy to help you. Beloved, I pray that we would all long to know more of Christ. But just as I've encouraged our unbelieving friends with us, get in the Word. Learn the mind of God. Let Scripture transform your mind. Don't just read Scripture like a book. Read it knowing that God has given you His written Word to teach you His very mind. Look for Jesus all throughout the Bible. Secondly, get in His ear. Pray. Pray back to Him what you've read. It'll ingrain it in your mind as well as teach you to think like He does. Third, spend time with his body. Don't neglect the weekly gathering of his body in corporate worship. You see, corporate worship takes the other two steps and combines them with community of believers. And all of these come straight from a little book that we read, the elders and the residents, called Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines by David Mathis. Highly recommend you read it. I tried to convince Brian to make it a requirement for membership, but he wouldn't do it. Said it wasn't in the Bible or something like that. But you, you really need to read it. It is very, very, very encouraging. Let's pray. Father, we want to know you more. But even the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I want to know God more and to know him more fully. Father, I pray today that if there's one here who does not know you, that they would come to know you before they leave. Lord, for believers, I pray that we would leave here hungry for Jesus, hungry to know him, anxious to learn more about him. Teach us in Jesus' name.